Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with our top story. Tensions escalating in the Middle East after President Donald Trump ordered an airstrike in Iraq, killing one of Iran's most powerful generals. The U.S. Defense Department writing in a statement at the direction of the president. The U.S. military has taken decisive defensive action to protect U.S. personnel abroad by killing Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization. Iran's supreme leader swiftly responding, writing the following, a severe retaliation awaits murderers who have have the blood of Soleimani and that of other martyrs on their wicked hands from last night's incident. We are pleased to join us by Nick Wadhams, Bloomberg State Department reporter. He joins us on the phone. Nick, my first question is decisive action from this administration, action that Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama did not take. Why has this administration chosen to do so? Well, uh, President Donald Trump has always said that he would... Uh do what was necessary and respond with uh, the greatest force possible and the most force required uh, to protect what he sees as U.S. interests. The big question that's being asked right now sort of in the national security community is whether he's thought out the consequences. So there's no doubt uh, among United States officials that Qasem Soleimani uh, was a bad guy. He had, um, according to the State Department, was uh, involved or responsible for the deaths of some 600 U.S. troops in Iraq. Um, so the, the the question now is, what is the off-ramp? Mike Pompeo tweeted this morning that right. um, he, the U.S. is still interested in de-escalation, but no one really knows where we go Nick Wadhams, this is so important that we lead with you in this hour because of your experience not only with Secretary of State Pompeo, but also with Secretary Tillerson. This is an original administration with original responses. How different is this moment with a unique Trump administration and this Pentagon versus a more traditional administration and a Pentagon? Well, (laughs) it's a great question because this is... Uh, how they've shown uh, they do everything when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, remember a couple of years ago, it just seemed unfathomable that President Trump would meet the leader of North Korea, and then suddenly there they were shaking hands uh, in Singapore. This is a quite, this is a president who puts a lot of stock in his own ability to achieve deals. And uh, yeah, but Nick, uh, he's not going to do the art of it. Nick, he's not. I don't mean to interrupt, Nick, but you're the pro at this. How do you do an art of the deal? with a nation, a people who's, from what I can tell, war hero has just been murdered. I mean, that's how they perceive it in Kerman, Tabriz, and Tehran, isn't it? Right, and that is the the central flaw of the argument and the big question going forward. Uh, The U.S. claims that this was a defensive action and that uh, it's still interested in de-escalation, but obviously, as you guys mentioned, uh, the response from Iran right now is there is absolutely no interest. And that's been the problem bedeviling Donald Trump for the last two years. He he got out of the, the Iran nuclear deal, and then he said he wanted a deal without preconditions. Iran so far has had absolutely no willingness to play ball. So it looks like the president's strategy so far toward Iran is not working. Well, let's talk about the strategy in the broader region. Two events over the last 12 months that stand out for me, the attack on Saudi oil facilities back in September, the United States, 
the Trump administration chose to do nothing. Then we had the Trump administration pulling out of Syria. Russia moved in. The United States chose to do essentially nothing. Nick, what was the red line that has been crossed in the last week that has made the United States push forward with decisive action? Well, uh, the the administration has always said that attacks on U.S. troops uh, would be uh, something that was the red line that that would provoke uh, what Secretary Pompeo called a decisive response. Uh, You saw that a a few days ago uh, when the U.S. killed uh, 23, 24 uh, militia members. Um, And then uh, obviously today we're seeing the true limits of what the, the administration means by a decisive response. Um, you know, the big question also is whether they felt provoked into this action because of the criticism that the administration faced over the fact that it really hadn't done something. And of course, President Trump's defenders will say, well, look, we're not the one we're not the ones who are instigating here. This is uh, a response to sustained aggression by the Iranian forces and uh, something that uh, they deserved and, and frankly had come. Nick Wadhams, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With thank Bloomberg you, Nick. News with true expertise on uh are the U.S. State Department. John, of course, you'll bring in our next guest, Amrita Sen. Edward Morris at Citigroup publishes moments ago, and he says this news of Iraq should push oil prices higher. He says, obviously, through 70 a barrel. But very importantly, Ed Morris, with his knowledge of oil and also Saudi and the geopolitics of the uh, Middle East, suggests later in 2020 there would be mitigating factors to drive oil lower. We turn to the oil market now. We do that with Amrita Sen, chief oil analyst at Energy Aspects. Amrita, fantastic to have you with us. Tremendously difficult to put a price on geopolitical risk. We go back to September where drones were used to attack Saudi Aramco facilities. September 14th, oil closed exactly where it was the Friday before the attacks by the end of the month. Many people looking at this situation and wondering at what point does this move begin to fade. Amrita, how different is this situation that we wake up to this Friday morning? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the question to ask. But the difference is um, I, the red line was breached, which is attack on U.S. personnel and U.S. facilities. And I think that's why there was an attack, right? With, whereas uh, with the attack on Saudi Arabia, it was made very clear that the U.S. is not going to get involved. Um, and I think that's where the difference is. But also remember, the, A, we haven't seen that kind of a move. It was like a $10 move under the Saudis. This has been more of a 3 to 4% move. The market's already tight. The The issue in many ways is that this is going to, Get, it's going to get played out over a long period of time. Iran isn't reckless. They're not going to come back tomorrow and there's not going to be retaliation just yet, right? It is going to get played out over time and the risk is of sectarian violence in Iraq and then it becomes a question of do you start getting uh, production affected in the region? You've already seen foreign workers being evacuated. I think U.S. foreign workers are being evacuated. What does that mean for long-term production in the country? Um, you know, say, let's say we disagree on whether the market is tight or not. Would you really be short oil over here? No. I think that's where, uh, that's kind of the, very, the clear difference also because this is coming at a time when the Saudis have clearly said that they will be supporting the floor at $60 and so they've cut production even more. Yeah. Uh, so it's, a, it's quite a different backdrop. Amrita, you've touched on Iran's response. They say they will respond. Let's talk about it in greater detail. The pressure within Iran to respond will be sky high. As Tom points out, this particular general, incredibly popular in the country. The question is how, the question is where. Do you see them frustrating oil infrastructure, delivery channels, the Strait of Hormuz? Do you see that happening in the coming month? 
I think they'll absolutely keep all their options open. But if the red line, which again, in some ways, you know, the, the, the Iranians had been poking to see where the red line was for the U.S., it wasn't the drone uh, strike. It wasn't really a huge uh, attack on one of its allies, but it was very much on direct U.S. personnel. If they know that's the red line, they probably are not going to go for anything similar there again, right? But yes, attacks on other countries' oil and gas facilities or on the Straits of Hormuz on shipping, which we've already seen, by the way, over the course of the last year, absolutely very possible. But again, I keep coming back to Iraq. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, on Iraq and particularly kind of to push out the pro-U.S. forces from Iraq. I think unfortunately, Iraq could just become the battleground and the geopolitical right. flashpoint for 2020. Now we've heard that from others. Amrita Sen, thank you so much for your cute analysis this morning. John, she was brilliant earlier on the distinction of the heavy crude of Iran and how that folds into Asian consumption of oil. Secretary Pompeo speaking to Fox News saying Iranian leadership understands the president will take action. The U.S. needed to take action to restore a deterrence. The president says the Soleimani strike decision was necessary. This according to Secretary Pompeo just moments ago on Fox News. That second headline, Tom, the United States needed to take action to restore a deterrence. Eurasia Group out in the last 24 hours saying the following Iranian leaders can no longer assume that Trump is a paper tiger who will not take decisive and risky military action. This is key. Many excuses, many reasons have crossed the president's desk in the last 12 months to confront Iran. He hasn't taken the opportunity. Many people out there today may suggest he had little choice. Joining us on the phone, Mark Champion, Bloomberg senior reporter for international affairs in London, joins us on the phone right now. Mark, talk to me about that. The need to restore a deterrence. The president, who was increasingly being viewed as a paper tiger. Your thoughts on that issue? Uh, yes, I think it is the critical issue because, you know, here are the alternatives. One is uh, that what happened recently in Iran, and remember that it was uh, Iranian-backed uh, militias in Iraq uh, that uh, attacked a U.S base and killed a U.S. contractor, and then it was militias, uh, again, Iranian-backed, uh, that attacked uh, the U.S. embassy um, in response to uh, U.S. retaliation, which had killed some of their members. So that was the background. So the question here is, um, either uh, what the U.S. was trying to do and that those events provided the trigger for it was to restore um, belief that it was willing to take military action in addition to the maximum pressure economic uh, uh, policy that it has had in trying to pressure the Iranian eco economy. Uh, or uh, one or both sides actually want a war. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's correct. The analysis is correct is that they don't want a war. Neither side wants a war. Um, but the U.S. wanted to uh, draw a line where many of its allies in the region, Saudi and so on, right. um, for, for some time have been saying the U.S. was not drawing a line. Mark, you've got such expertise on the depth of these ancient debates. Frame or triangulate the United States-Iranian battle, going back to 1979 for some of us, with the Shia-Sunni battle, which goes back centuries and centuries. Which is more important to Tehran? 
you know, one would, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question to pose in that sense. Um, you know, there, obviously there is a, these are two parallel narratives. You're absolutely right. Um, and the, uh, the, you know, the Iranian uh, uh, relationship to the U.S. Um, is uh, very, has been very dominant ever since 1979. Um, and, uh, you know, it is no coincidence that the U.S. has been a close ally of Iran's, the Iranian regime's main Sunni rivals in the region. So the two things become very intertwined, um, and it's kind of hard to pick them apart. You know, just to take an example right now, uh, here you have the Iranian regime um, uh, trying to decide how it will respond to uh, the U.S. in a U.S. action. But among the options that it has there are, you know, not just uh, lobbying a ballistic missile at uh, one of the uh, American bases in the region, which is something that the, you know, the, the uh, Iranian officials have said they can do. Um, but much more likely is that they use some of their militias in order to attack uh, the interests of the U.S. and its allies in the region, the militias that have been working with them in Syria, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, and which Qasem uh, Soleimani was absolutely instrumental in both putting together and using. Well, Mark, as you point out, at the epicenter of the effort to push a sphere of influence in the region for the Shiites from Iran was Qasem Soleimani. That doesn't end with his death, though, does it, Mark? And I just wonder what the next steps the Iranians will take to maintain that sphere of influence in the region. Many people will remember just a week ago we had naval exercises in the Gulf of Amman between Russia, China and Iran. What happens with some of these key allies of Iran? Yes. Um, so, uh, on the one hand, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, because Soleimani dies, uh, that does not mean that everything that he's built suddenly goes away. It doesn't. And those remain the primary tools that are available uh, to the Iranian regime uh, as they decide on what to do. And then the secondary question, which is also an absolutely key question, you know, um, you know, a couple of people have already said, you know, this is a bit reminiscent, this assassination of such an iconic figure in Iran is a bit reminiscent of what happened in 1914 with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, uh, the Austrian prince. And that, of course, began um, the uh, uh, World War I. Um, but the difference is, the question there is, so what do the other great powers do? Um, and that goes directly to your question, right. what about Russia and China? Um, and, you know, uh, obviously we don't, uh, we don't know exactly the answer, but my very strong, uh, you know, guess would be or, uh, that this is not the same as 1914. Neither oh. the U.S. nor Iran actually wants a war, and neither China nor Russia would be willing to go to war with the U.S. Uh, in, you know, on Iran's behalf. So well, completely different. As usual, we must expand the conversation with Mark Champion, and I'm sure we'll do that in the coming hours Thank you, Mark. and days. He is with Bloomberg Opinion, of course, in London, a senior Middle East uh, correspondent. What we'd like to do is spend the entire uh, half hour, rather, with James Stravitas. He is the dean, former dean, I should say, 
of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. I can say he's former uh, Supreme Commander for NATO, but John Farrell, that doesn't matter because what he really is is a former combat veteran on destroyers and on fleets as well. Admiral Stavitas, thank you so much for joining us. I want you to speak to the people listening to our show coast to coast who have family in the military. These people are out on platforms. They're in the Army, the Navy, the Marines at all. At what risk is our military this morning? Well, as usual, Tom, there's good news and bad news here. I'll start with the obvious bad news, which is that we have uh, assassinated a leading Iranian political figure, and there will be repercussions. So Iran is going to lash out, and that will put our troops at risk and, to some degree, their family. Here's the good news, Tom. Our military is ready for this. Iran does not have the element of surprise here. At every base around the world, uh, security is increasing. We're moving missile defense systems in place. We're ready, but it is going to be a very challenging time ahead. So my, my word for all of our military families, especially, and certainly our troops were deployed, and they know this, is be ready because Iran will respond. What is so important here, and I go back to the Sheffield and the Argentinian War, is there's all these big plans and all of this work of big budgets and a Pentagon and that. And in 1975, it can be, you know, one, excuse me, 1982, it can be one Exocet missile. Uh, which, which was the feeling then, and that's the, the nakedness, if you will, of the American public. How do we defend at the Persian Gulf Gap? How do we defend in a geography where Iran could respond? We've got to take a 360 view here, Tom. In other words, there's no silver bullet. No one missile defense system is going to save you. No one intelligence uh, capability is going to give you perfect knowledge. No one uh, defensive system against an incoming torpedo in the water is going to be perfect. But if you put all of those elements together, you've got a very good chance of defending yourself. And this is both at sea and ashore and in the air. And again, we're, we're quite capable of this. I think we can handle just about anything Iran throws out. Tom, let me tell you one thing I worry about Please. the most. It's cyber and cyber security. Here, I think our level of preparation is not as high relative to all the obvious kinetic military effects that Iran could launch against us. So for all who are involved in the cyber world today, heads up, they will use cyber against us. Admiral Jonathan here. Let's explore that just a couple of steps further. Some of the American press, in fact, the international press, may wish to paint Iran as some kind of reckless rogue state. They're incredibly calculating foreign policy is well thought out. And I'm just wondering if you can take us into the mind of the government with, within Iran right now, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, the thoughts, the process they'll be going through to calculate their next step, their response. Indeed. Let's look at what Iran's options are. And so in the Iranian equivalent of the Pentagon this evening, it is evening there, uh, they will be looking at attacking our troops in Afghanistan, in western Afghanistan. They will look at perhaps going after that embassy in Baghdad again, although I think it's unlikely because it's now well defended. Yeah. They'll look at strikes against Israel. They will look at cyber attacks against the U.S. mainland, as well as our command and control overseas. And lastly, I think they'll look very seriously at the Persian Gulf, at right. maritime options. 
Well, I'm going to get the map out here, and this is something, folks, I'm as weak on. Our Golnar Montevalli has helped me so much with the fabric of the large geography of Iran. Admiral Stavidis, you're expert at this. There's Tehran in four or 500 miles mile south. There's Kerman, K-E-R-M-A-N. We've seen that image this morning of the people of Kerman silently in the streets standing and mourning. And then if you go 300 miles directly south, you get to your Persian Gulf. It's distant from Tehran, but it's not, is it? It is not. And, of course, the Iranian military has very significant bases, both inside the Persian Gulf. And then you go through the Strait of Hormuz into the North Indian Ocean, Tom, as you can see on your map. Yeah. And that is where the, the most significant of the Iranian naval bases are. And, by the way, Iran... China and Russia have just concluded a two-week naval exercise in the northern Indian Ocean. So the Iranian fleet is preparing to move to sea. I think we well, will see a potential response from them. What is, I know John wants to get in here. Again, James Stravitas with us and will be with us through much of his half hour. Admiral Stravitas, when you say the Iranian fleet, what is that? It's um, not remotely capable in the way that the U.S. fleet is, Tom. But I'll tell you three things they're pretty good at. They have diesel submarines, which are very quiet and capable of operating in the relatively shallow waters of the Persian Gulf and the North Indian Ocean. Secondly, they have small craft that they can deploy in high numbers in what are called swarm attacks. Uh, They have uh, rocket-fired missiles on them, and you can send 20 of them to attack a big Navy destroyer, and that can be a problem. Third and finally, Tom, they have very capable cruise missiles, which they can launch both from at sea and from their naval platform. So they're certainly not the U.S. Navy. They're not 10 feet tall, but they can inflict real damage on a U.S. warship. We ought to be very concerned about that as the next few days unfolds. Admiral, you mentioned the war games taking place in the Gulf of Oman in the last week between Russia, China, and Iran. What do you expect the response of Russia and China to be in the coming days? They will undoubtedly condemn this attack. They'll portray it as an assassination of a political figure. They'll ignore the fact that Soleimani uh, was not only the Machiavelli, the Cardinal Richelieu of violence in this Iranian hierarchy, but that uh, he was also personally involved. He literally has blood on his hands. They'll ignore all that. And they'll portray this as a rogue U.S. military operation. I will say um, we had to recognize that uh, Soleimani was deadly and evil, and taking his piece off the chessboard is tactically a good thing. What we have yet to do is lay out a strategy to deal with the after effects and the longer-term issues here. Well, let's talk about that. The opportunity to take down General Soleimani existed in the president of the presidency of George W. Bush, the presidency of Barack Obama as well. Those opportunities weren't taken, Admiral. Why not? Uh, Because of the sense that that would escalate uh, a direct military confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. So that begs the question, why now? And my guess is that within the White House, the, the calculus was made that at this moment they have Uh, overwhelming evidence that Soleimani was behind the rocket attacks that killed contractor uh, a couple of days ago, that he was behind the attacks on our embassy. He became a target of opportunity 
His level of threat and level of violence has only increased since the days of both Bush and Obama. I think those three things came together, and the administration, uh, as the words go in in Top Gun, had a shot, Maverick, and they took it. So you can argue with uh, whether or not that is pouring gasoline on a smoldering fire. I think it is. On the other hand, tactically, we are ahead for taking out Soleimani. Strategically, we still have work to do. We've been talking to Admiral Stravitas about the military impacts of the killing of this general of Iran, and it has been absolutely brilliant, particularly Admiral Stravitas' comments on what the Iranian Navy can do at the Gulf of Hormuz. Now let us turn to Washington, and I will say Dean Stravitas, formerly with the Fletcher School at Tufts University, this is occurring within the most polarized Washington of our lifetimes. How does that change the Washington debate that we are so polarized in our modern politics? Unfortunately, Tom, there's no good news here. Let's face it, we're about to see an impeachment trial. We have an election in 11 months. It's the most, uh, as you say, polarized, I would say highly charged environment I can remember uh, in my lifetime, my adult lifetime. So the unfortunate part about it is that we used to have a philosophy that foreign policy uh, makes sure that there's bipartisanship at the water's edge. That's not what we're seeing today. And I think you're going to see both Republicans and Democrats on divergent paths as we look at what we need to do going forward with Iran. And that's uh, a mistake because we have to pulled together as a team here, interagency working together, and indeed the branches of government working together. Admiral Stavridis, one final question, if I may, this morning. Is the State Department any semblance of the State Department you have studied through your career, or is it essentially a State Department run out of the White House? I would say in this administration, the uh, the moves of foreign policy are not strategic. As you know, Tom, we think back to George Kennan and the policy yes. planning staff, the creation of the strategy of containment. That came out of the State Department into the interagency. Today, it's driven by the National Security Council staff. We have a relatively new National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, uh, and we have a Secretary of State in Mike Pompeo, uh, who is a very good tactical thinker, but hasn't created the long-term strategy that we'd like to see. So, yes, this is being driven largely by a diplomacy of tweets. Think of it as shots of espresso into the system day after day, hour after hour. And that is not a good way to run foreign policy. I will do out today a full court press on the authorship of James Stravitas' important new book, chapter by chapter on the admirals of the Navy, including Mr. Rickover. And I will, of course, mention his wonderful The Leader's Bookshelf. Admiral James Stravitas, rather, with us this morning. Team Surveillance has done just such a wonderful job today to get perspective from military, from those of international relations, and indeed from finance on these events in Baghdad and the silence we see in the streets of Kerman, Tabriz, and Tehran, uh, in Iran, and of course the responses in Washington. Uh, we do that now and sum that now 
with the Brigadier General. Mark Kimmett uh, is with the Army. He is formerly serving with the State Department as well. And we're thrilled he could join us. I should mention, as unusual, he is expert in finance with his uh, CFA as well. General Kimmett, I have to rip up the script uh, this morning with you. And I want to take you from the staffing and strategy you are acclaimed for back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and that is the United States Army Field Artillery School. How does our military, with traditional events, as you were once a field artillery officer, how do we dovetail that military into the new military that needs to defend against unique Iranian strategies? Well, first of all, um, this is not the same army that uh, my father was in in 1954 at Fort Sill when I was born. That was a very heavy conventional army that relied on tanks, artillery, uh, airplanes. We do have those same capabilities these days, and if we have a conflict with uh, Iraq, we will certainly use some of those capabilities. But that's not the way that Iran will fight us. They will fight us in an unconventional manner, and that's something that our unconventional forces have become premier experts in the world on. Uh, You take a look at the special forces, which were virtually nothing in 1954 to now the capabilities that they can bring to the battlefield. They're also going to fight us not only unconventionally with troops, they'll also use drones, they'll also use missiles, they'll also use other kind of capabilities, targeted assassinations. Um, We've been training for decades on these types of conflicts. We're not perfect at it, but we're pretty damn good at it. Within all this, and as Admiral Stravitas told us uh, a, a bit ago, there is a new warfare that uh, James Stravitas talks about, which is cyber uh, war as well. You're again attuned as an expert on this. Explain exactly how Iran commits cyber war against the people of the United States. Yeah, well, first of all, let me clarify, I am no longer in the Army. I am Right, retired. please. Yes, and, of course. And, and second... Uh, I would say Jimmy Stavridis has it exactly right. If you took a look at, take a look at the types of war in the shadows that is going on right now on the Internet, uh, probably the best example of that is when a combined effort went after the Stuxnet uh, capability, used the Stuxnet to stop the uh, Iranian capability, the, the centrifuge capability. That we have that capability, they have that capability. Of course, what they will try to do is attack some of our critical infrastructure. Um, And the important thing is they may have an offensive capability. The important thing is how good is our defensive capability. Um, uh, They've got Tehran. We've got Silicon Valley. They've got a bunch of IRGC guys running around screaming death to America. We have a bunch of millennials sitting in cubicles out in Silicon Valley. And I think we've got the better deal on that. I think we'll be able to defend against anything they try to throw at us. In the time that we've got left, we can go back to your father, who had a nodding acquaintance with the machinery of the Senate a few years back. It was a less polarized Senate. How does uh, uh, General Kimmett, how do you perceive a deeply polarized Washington? And is that a deterrence to the Pentagon? Well, it's not a deterrence to the Pentagon. It's certainly, in some ways, an impediment to the to the. Thank Pentagon. you. Better said. We we would like to see a bipartisan Congress, even if bipartisan 
decisions are not necessarily what the Pentagon believes in. But this, this fist fight that's going on up there where you've got one side of the aisle screaming at the other side of the aisle, it doesn't do for the Pentagon what we need it to be doing, making bipartisan decisions for the best uh, interest of the United States of America. And that's what we could use right now. Well, it's what we could use right now and certainly what the Pentagon requests. And some would say, whether Republican or Democrat, that the Trump administration is original. Is it a factor that it's such a different administration method versus previous Republican and Democrat administrations? Um, there is uh, there are two sides of that coin. Uh, on one side of the coin, one would argue that the conventional way of doing diplomatic relations, negotiations that we've seen for years and years in places such as North Korea uh, haven't worked. And as President Obama once said, uh, when you've been doing the same thing for 50 years and it doesn't work, then try something new. Uh, this president is certainly trying something new, particularly in the areas of foreign policy. Uh, he is taking a risk with this action that he took over the past 24 hours. I certainly hope his advisors and the Pentagon are prepared for the inevitable backlash that we're going to see. Uh, whether it will lead to the end to the 40-year conflict that we've had with Iran is yet to be seen, um, but that's what we pay presidents to do. Well, I guess it's all germane, but what is so important here, and, and Mark Kemet, again, you have the synthesis of this within Washington, is so, somewhat the cliche getting everyone on the same page. We have a State Department that's certainly original. I think Secretary of State Pompeo would even admit that. The Pentagon is a Pentagon, and then we've got, as you mentioned, the fractured politics. Do, do you have any sense that these events of the last 24 hours will get people on the same page? Uh, I don't think so, if for no other reason than it's an election year. Uh, yeah, however, yeah. if, if, it, if it elevates to the point where uh, I, I, we have some pretty bleak scenarios where we have outcomes such as large number of American troops killed, embassies being attacked, that may rally everyone to a common effort. But I think as long as we are seeing the conflict and the crisis at, at a moderate level, I think you're going to see both sides of the aisle come out with different press statements, um, none of them completely self-serving, but none of them completely with the interests of the United States in mind. General Kimmett, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mark Kimmett, of course, retired Brigadier General of the United States Army, his service also at the State Department. We greatly appreciate it. We've talked to James Stravitas this morning. We've talked to Mark Kimmett, of course, with our expertise in the Pentagon. And with a certain authority here is Margaret Brennan. You, of course, know her from Face the Nation on uh, CBS. And we'll talk a minute about this Sunday show, which I'm sure she's blowing up and destroying right now and <laughs> rebuilding. But, Margaret, I really thought of you about your tour of duty covering state for CBS we heard Secretary Pompeo on Fox News today on CNN. I'm sure he'll do a uh, walkthrough with CBS at some point. How different is the State Department now versus the State Department of a few years ago or of 2011 on the killing of Osama bin Laden? 
Oh, completely different. I mean, the silence was deafening last night. Um, many State Department officials, uh, lead policymakers for the Middle East, were in the dark about this. Um, and this is the kind of uh, assassination of a leader that is sort of a, a step above taking out a, a bin Laden or a, a Baghdadi in terms of right. actually challenging a state and having right. a, a a war footing. So this is incredible. And uh, Secretary Pompeo this morning is making these oblique kind of mysterious references to uh, um, imminent threats to the U.S. and we just don't have any explanation yet. Well, you go right to the heart of the matter and I'm going to frame as Paul Sweeney as I did uh, earlier. I was with Nora Rubini on the stage at the Milken Institute and the clearest memory of the taxi cab ride from LAX, Margaret, uh, with an Ethiopian cab driver in tears over to the Beverly Hills, whatever. I mean, that was such an important moment for America, the killing of Osama bin Laden. And you're suggesting this is actually a larger event? Well, it, I, I do not mean in any way to lessen 9-11 by any stretch of the imagination. But what really has the national security implications long term for the United States were the dominoes that fell after bin Laden that was uh, or, or after bin Laden's attack on the United States rather than the assassination of him. It was the war in Iraq. It was the war in Afghanistan. It was the U.S. actions that were triggered by the event itself rather than dec- a decade later, the targeting and killing of a terrorist leader. Qasem Soleimani was considered an enemy of the United States. He has blood on his hands of at least 600 U.S. servicemen, thousands of of, uh, Middle East uh, uh, nations on his hands. But he was also a right-hand man to the supreme leader of Iran. This is like targeting the vice president, the CIA director in the United States. This is an act of war, um, and this is a dramatic escalation, uh, and a dramatic escalation after Iran has been ratcheting up tensions incredibly over the past two and a half mm-hmm. years at the direction of Soleimani, after the U.S. pulled out of that Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the sanctions the Trump administration has piled on have not stopped Iran from meddling. It did not stop Soleimani. Assassinating him takes out the leader. Does it kill the organization? No. Margaret, I know it's very, very early hours for this story, just having broken overnight, but within the Beltway, are you getting any sense of kind of what the folks in Washington believe the next steps will be? Expectations for some type of retaliation, I guess? Well, yes. I mean, there are obviously a lot of people going to worst case scenarios there, and I do not want to be hyperbolic here, but we are seeing, uh, you know, messages of increased security from mayors across the country about the U.S. homeland. We are seeing you know, worst case scenarios being drawn up by U.S. allies who are concerned that Iran may ditch what remains of that nuclear deal that it has with the world powers that President Trump pulled out of, mm-hmm. but still has been in place. Does this make Iran decide to go forward? Right. Uh, there is a lot of um, back of the envelope sort of risk assessment here. And that is why it is so right. incredible, really, that the Trump administration hasn't explained what comes next. And they are saying this is to de-escalate most allies and adversaries are saying this is escalatory. Margaret, instead of asking who your guests are in Face the Nation, because I'm sure you're working on a new show uh, right now, <laughs> what is your yeah, number right. one question Sunday morning, whether it's a politician or someone from the military, et cetera? What's your number one Face the Nation question Sunday? How does this end? Is America safer? 
I agree. Is America safer? That's one been one of our themes today. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much. Of course, with Face the Nation, you can see it on CBS Sunday morning. You can hear Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan on Bloomberg Radio Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and now Bloomberg 1061 Boston. New report, Face the Nation, this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.